This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just kind of don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to the community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And here's the best part. You can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or you have an existing show that you would like to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcasting experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com slash join. Blue Wire. Kawhi Leonard is going to join the Clippers. Kawhi turns the corner for the win. Three on the way. Yes. Paul George nails it. Lou Williams for the win. Bingo. Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to Clip and Roll. As always, I am your host, Justin Russo. Yeah, hello. I am other guy, Farbid. Okay, today is going to be interesting. We're recording this on Thursday, February 25th, and guess what? You're getting this episode on Thursday, February 25th. You will have it drop before the Clippers play this evening against the Memphis Grizzlies. We just wanted to cobble something together and talk about their last three games. And we're going to do a preview of the second half of their schedule because the NBA yesterday on Wednesday released the second half of the schedule. We'll get into that in a little bit. But far about this past, I guess, few days, week, whatever, every time doesn't matter anymore. Uh, the Clippers got Paul George and Kawhi Leonard back and Nicholas Batum and Patrick Beverly. In the first game back, they beat the Utah Jazz. And once, Luke Kennard. And Luke Kennard. You're correct. One, They beat the Utah Jazz 116-112. Uh, Donovan Mitchell tried his damnedest in, late in the fourth quarter to make that actually competitive. And credit to him, that was insane. Um, they then played the Brooklyn Nets, who were without Kevin Durant. The Nets beat the Clippers 112-108 in another very good competitive game. That game never happened. Okay. And then the Clippers rebounded to beat the Washington Wizards 135-116. They actually ended the Wizards, I believe, five-game winning streak, which was hilarious to some degree. It was a pretty um, good winning streak, though, too. Yeah, they were beating some good teams. They, didn't they beat like Phoenix, Celtics, Lakers or something? 
Nuggets, Lakers, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a that's a wild winning streak for a team. All right, let's talk about the Utah game first. Um, they get twenty nine from Kawhi Leonard. Paul George looks rusty. I mean, to be fair, he and Kawhi Leonard both look rusty. And after the game, Ty Lue says he thought they both looked rusty in terms of like their floor game. Um, Lou Williams has 19. Marcus Morris has 17, hits three threes. Neither team really played that well, if I'm being honest. And the Clippers won, which is a good sign. Uh, Mike Conley came back for that game for Utah as well. So it was two full strength teams against each other and the Clippers won yes by four points um Donovan Mitchell hits like three threes towards the end of the game to claw Utah within a chance which was unreal this <laughs> the um, game huh that was uh I mean it was Paul George's first game back but man he was so rusty that game he and Kawhi were rusty like it was weird because like I mean he was rusty from a facet of like there, he was kind of the reason why that game extended into the way it did. Yeah, with those turnovers and then the three point foul, and then it's just like, oh, dude, just like, just don't. <laughs> well, the three point foul at the end really didn't matter. But... It didn't, but it was just like, come on, like, just let it end. The end of that game, I I believe the last like forty five seconds took like fifteen minutes, right? Something like that. Yeah, that's absurd. That's an absurd amount of time. Because um, I remember we asked Ty after the game if he's ever been in a game where the final minute went that long. And he, he was just he was not happy about the end of that game. I don't think any of the Clippers were happy about the end of that game, even though they won. Uh, the next game against Brooklyn, as I said, no, no Kevin Durant. Um, Clippers end up losing by four. They were down by, I believe, as many as 15 in the fourth. They claw all the way back. Um, they end up losing by four, as I said. James Harden goes for 37, 11, and 7. Kyrie has 28. Um, the real, I guess, takeaway, besides Paul George and Kawhi Leonard looking very good, is A, the Clippers really had no third guy truly step up, and the Nets got an insane contribution out of Bruce Brown and DeAndre Jordan, which credit to them. You know, a lot of the games in this league you win because role players step up, so... I wasn't really disconcerted about that loss. I know there was people that were. I really didn't care. Well, I mean, the one thing you're overlooking is it showed their pick and roll defense really wasn't very good. Like that was a big issue in that game. Like they just let everyone get to the rim over and over and over and over. Like, and also the substitutions were kind of weird in my opinion. I don't think you should have taken out Zubots when you took out Zubots and Surge clearly wasn't getting it done. So it was a learning experience from that facet. And they also, I asked pregame about why they like, like they, they said the Nets had unorthodox defense and Ty Lue had mentioned, you know, like they do all these switches and it traps us. And then we get fall into like the ISO ball trap and then they just did it again anyway. So it's, I, I wanted to see what would happen if they didn't fall through that trap. But I mean, the game was close regardless, but they didn't play good basketball and it was their own fault. It just felt like they didn't learn anything from the first time that they played them, to be honest. Uh, also, that was the worst finish I've ever seen in like nine years at working at Staples Center. I just, uh, it was just a weird game. Like the Clippers, for some reason, when they play the Nets, as you said, they fall into like this mid post trap, which is fine with Kawhi and PG. Like that's fine. And even Marcus, Marcus has been making some good reads out of the mid post this season. But, like, I, I'm not a fan of the Sergi Baca post-ups. Like, I, I feel like 
if you're going to get Ibaka the ball, it's either at the three-point lines out of pick and pop, running off the down screen at the elbow to start a game, which they do at other times during the game, and then to get him going to the rim. I don't I don't need to see Serge Ibaka post-ups 10 feet from the rim. Like, that's that's not the move. That's that's not the wave, if, if I'm being completely honest. Too. They did it the first time too. Like, so it makes me wonder if they know that and they just wanted to try it out or, but I mean, that could be looking at it too deep. I mean, the, the Nets won the game. Bruce Brown was incredible. DeAndre Jordan, that was his second game back at Staples Center, by the way, and he looked amazing. He looked like he knew it was his second game back at Staples Center. That tip in he had to give them a two point lead late in the game was insane. It was preposterous, to be honest. I was thinking about it and I was like, man. I was there when this guy like refused to put the ball back in against the Blazers and Chris Paul had an aneurysm and here he is all these years later making a play like that, which he would have never made for the Clippers. To be fair, that Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan play against the Blazers is way overblown because the clock technically expired. I don't know, man. That was one of the worst things I've seen. No, the, the clock expired. The problem was the reason that play gets talked about what people don't realize the clock had expired, but it was still showing time on the clock because the clock never started. So like if they, if for instance, if Deandre makes the putback in that game, it's waved off because they would have went to replay and saw the time should have been running and the, the basket would not have stood. I mean, I don't know, man. I've seen DJ do some boneheaded things for the Clippers, like tipping in a shot in the playoffs and causing overtime to lose against the Spurs. So I can't give him the benefit of the doubt. No, I understand. I just, you know, look, it was good to see DJ. I mean, we don't really see DJ. I mean, he's in the he's in the East now, and, you know, he had a, an amazing Clippers career. So it was nice to see him play well. It was a tough loss is what it is. The Clippers rebounded the next the next game to beat the wizards by 19. Um, they were up at like 24 or 25 in this game. It got down to about five or six in the third. And then the Clippers kind of just hammered them in the fourth and motored to a 19 point win. If you actually look at the stat lines from this game, it was really interesting. Kawhi Leonard had 32, seven and four, but I don't think he was the best Clipper. I think that was Paul George. He had 30 points, six rebounds, three assists. He made six of his seven threes. Reggie Jackson, who I did the video breakdown of today for that game. I thought he was great. 17 points, five rebounds, two assists. Zubats continues as a great play, 12 and 13. Uh, Marcus Morris looked okay. Terrence Mann's play to start the fourth quarter was incredible. And then I look over at the Wizards, and I'm like, Bradley Beal had 28 and 10. And while I thought he was good, it was hard to find him at times, even though he did it on 50%, It was it's just, which is insane to say about a guy. The real thing that killed them was Russell Westbrook was just awful. And you look at his stat line, you're like, okay, he had 20 points, 90 rebounds, 10 assists. He made 50% of his shots. How was he so bad? Their defense was legitimately bad on the, with him on the court because he didn't want to defend anybody. So the Clippers just kept going at him. Same thing with Beal on that end. Yeah, it was – the Wizards game was interesting because, like, you knew they were going to have a surge just because – their offense just keeps going. Like they just don't stop ever. But talking it, about Washington, yeah, yeah. But it, it was just you, like you, you knew they were going to keep going. But at the same time, like they didn't play any defense. It's almost like the Wizards play how people think the Nets are. 
people think the Nets are all offense and no defense, but it's like, no, that's the Wizards. They're like insane offense. The one thing I will say about Westbrook, which I think kind of ruined his plus minus, was he pushed the ball up so fast. It led to wide open looks for his teammates because nobody on the transition could recover. Then his teammates just wouldn't hit the shot. And then they'd miss and then the Clippers would score in transition right after. So I think that hurt his plus minus, but his presence on the court, uh, besides the dumb decisions, you know, like some of the pull-ups or whatever, I thought he honestly thought he put pressure on the team. I do not think that at all. I mean, there were certain plays where he would push it up so fast in transition, the Clippers really couldn't even catch up. And the Wizards got the shot they wanted. They just didn't hit it. The Wizards shot 55% from three in that game. Not in the not in the early going, though. No, not in the early going, but like, I kind of look at it, and just because you show energy, does, like, you can have misplaced energy. No, there's energy, but he set them up in a position for them to hit the shot. No, they I, just I understand what you're shot. saying, but like, I would watch his turnovers. I would watch just the awful shot decisions he would have. I would watch him absolutely not even try on defense, which is just absolutely abhorrent. So I'm just, but then I, again, I don't like Russell Westbrook. Nobody tried on defense on that team besides like Rui Hachimura. No, I understand that. But like, it's worse when it's a veteran because that's a guy who should be like kind of leading the way. Like, all right, guys, like let's, let's at least try. And he just stood there and just was watching things. It was, I just can't stand watching him play. Like five years ago, he was fun to watch. Now it's literally, he might be like, like quote unquote, among the superstars, if you consider him one, which I don't anymore. But among those types of players, he is the worst one to watch for me personally. It's not enjoyable basketball. I feel like he's the Randy Orton of uh, basketball. No, no. Because... Fans have always crapped on Randy Orton for like decades, decades. Every fan would talk about how boring he is. And every wrestler you ever talk to will say he is the best worker or the smoothest worker or their best, the like their most favorite guy to work with. Even as far back as like 2010, 2012, before he was doing like this grizzly veteran stuff he's doing. And Westbrook is the same way where like fans have been pounding on him since the year he won like the MVP, maybe. And even before that, they would always be like, oh, he took the shot away from Katie and the Thunder, this or that. And then every player you talk to, whether it's Austin Rivers, Paul George, Steven Adams, Enos Cantor, all say he's the greatest teammate they've ever had. So there's like a clear, there's a clear kind of disconnect between what we see and what players see with Westbrook. You can be a great teammate and not be a great player anymore. I'm just saying. He, I understand. A I just between what we see and what they see with Westbrook. I understand. I'm just saying. I just cannot enjoy his game whatsoever. I feel like there's nothing he brings that actively makes a team better at this point of his career, which is really disheartening because of where he was. Like I said, four or five, six years ago. But that's time. That's injuries. You know, that's a guy who doesn't have a jumper. It is what it is at this point. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. 
We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. So the NBA dropped the second half of the schedule and it begins for the Clippers March 11th at home against Golden State. It's a TNT game. But before they actually play that game, they have five games left in the first half before we get to the all-star break tonight. They play the Memphis Grizzlies. They also play the Memphis Grizzlies tomorrow. Patrick Patterson is out due to personal reasons. That's the only thing that we have on the injury report right at at this time right now. Um, I'm sure stuff will change. It always does. Um, How are you feeling about the team going into these games against Memphis? I feel fine. You just, that's it. You just feel fine. Yeah. You don't want to expand on that? Yeah. Okay. Memphis is currently 10th in the West. Uh, they're 13 and 14. As a reminder, Memphis missed a ton of games because of uh, they had to undergo a hiatus due to, I believe, a COVID health and safety protocol outbreak or whatever for them. So they missed quite a few uh, games, and they had to actually make that up in the second half of the season. So like I said, Clippers will get Memphis tonight and tomorrow. They get Milwaukee Sunday, Boston Tuesday, which I will not be covering. Uh, I have prior engagement. And Thursday, they play Washington in Washington to end their season series against Washington and head into the All-Star break. Like I said, second half came out. They play Golden State to start. They then go on a three-game road trip, technically for two cities. They go at New Orleans, at Dallas on the second night of a back-to-back, and then play Dallas two days later. Um, there's an there's like a really weird schedule quirk in here for them where they play like nine straight home games from March 27th to April 9th. Yeah, they're, the second half of the schedule is kind of rough. Also, in regards to Memphis, I'm pretty sure John Moran's going to score 30 in both games. But uh, just because the Clippers keep letting guards pop off against them. Yeah, I kind of don't think they give a crap about guards, as weird as that sounds. It's very weird. It, like he's, I mean, I'd be shocked if he didn't get 30 both games. I kind of also feel like, let's talk about this for a second. So Zach Lowe did an episode or part of an episode with Ohm uh, from ESPN because Ohm covers the Clippers and Ohm has talked, Ohm talked with Zach about this, about how Ty Lue doesn't really show all his defensive cards in a season. And I do think that's the case. Like in Cleveland, he didn't in Cleveland, as they said, Ty took more of an ownership of the defense uh, late in games and in the postseason. I think we're going to see a little bit of that this season, even with Dan Craig on board. Uh, That's just kind of the, Uh, personality styles that they have. They're able to bounce things off of each other and off the players. And, you know, it's a very cohesive group, coaching staff, players, et cetera. Um, What I think is happening is we're not seeing them blitz ball handlers as much as they probably will in the postseason. For instance, Bradley Beal, I feel like the Clippers would just blitz him. If it was a postseason series and you're playing the Wizards, you know, in the finals, basically, you're just going to blitz Bradley Beal and force Russell Westbrook to make shots or make correct decisions without turning the ball over. If you're playing Brooklyn, it's a little bit tougher because they have three of the greatest offensive players in the history of basketball. But against Utah, they weren't really blitzing Mitchell. They didn't really blitz, blitz Conley. You know, like it's it's these little things, you know, like they didn't blitz 
uh, anybody on the Celtics. Like they didn't do it to Kemba Walker. They didn't try to trap him, you know, stuff like that. So I feel like when you get to like the actual postseason, you're not going to see as much drop coverage or things of that nature. You're going to see more switching. You're going to see more blitzing. You're going to see more trapping, you know, more hedging. You're going to see all these kinds of things. I think kind of ties just using this stretch right now to kind of just see what, what does and does not work. Yeah. I mean, he kind of showed, he showed his card with the uh, Marcus Morris at center uh, it seems like that'll definitely be something that comes in playoffs. But uh, he he's clearly just kind of – he's not doing everything, but at the same time, the Clipper defense isn't – there's a lot of times where I'm like, that defense is, it leaves much to be desired this season. A lot of times. They're hit and miss from the standpoint of um... – I'm going to say trying like their starting lineup actually tries defensively. A lot of their other lineups don't really. So they're also trying to work lineups together. Like Luke Kennard was out for several games and now he's back. Um, Like they're, they're trying new things out, which is what we wanted out of a head coach. Like we didn't want a head coach to just keep bashing his head against the wall, doing the same thing. We wanted a head coach who was malleable, who was willing to try new things. And that's Ty Lue. So I can't get mad at the guy for trying things to seeing what works, what doesn't, what lineups work, what doesn't, what pick and roll coverages do and don't work. Like it's what we wanted. I do think, I don't know if I can, rem- I, I don't know if I can remember one game where I'm like, from start to stop, they were great defensively. Feels like every game it's always been something. Maybe, maybe, yeah, every game feels like it's been something. Whether it's like the Nets and you know the pick and roll defense, or the Cavs and letting him get the floaters in, or like the Wizards and those wide open shots. But see, and the floaters are fine. The floaters were fine, but it was way too many at that point against the Cavs. They just kind of got fortunate. Paul George went nuclear that game because if he doesn't, you Are lose. Are you talking about the game in Cleveland? Yeah, before no, Paul that was him. fine. That was absolutely the right call. Uh, it's risky though. How how is it risky? Because if Paul George doesn't go nuclear, that game is a much different story. And there is But not- you could say that about so many teams in so many I mean, games. He hit nine threes. I understand. Threes. I understand. They also won that game by 22. So even if he hits four threes, they still look good. I just think it's risky. It's the thing you're, is- you're letting you're letting another team get a lot of confidence and get hot. The thing is. See, I don't really believe too much in that. Like, I think it's you want to deny a team getting the best shots. And the Clippers have been forcing teams into a ton of mid-range shots, especially short mid-range shots, which are fine. They yield the lowest level of efficiency. So if you're forcing teams, like for instance, Utah allow Utah gives up the second most uh, mid-range shots. The Clippers give up, I believe, like eighth. Like the like you start looking at some of the good defenses like Utah, Golden State, Phoenix, Milwaukee. The you know the Clippers aren't a great defense, but they're right with those teams in terms of frequency of shots allowed in the mid range. They're not giving up a ton of mid range shots. You know they're also not giving up a ton of, of of shots at the rim. They're basically middle of the pack and giving up threes. 
Like they're giving up the shots you want to give up defensively. And at a certain point, I feel like their defensive numbers are going to even out when teams are no longer shooting 44% in the mid range anymore. I don't know, man. I just, from what I'm seeing, you, I've seen the Clippers so many times in the playoffs. Think someone's not going to get hot. This or was get a different confidence. team. It's not, does it, I mean, is it though? It's the same story Did, within five years with two different teams. Like when you let somebody get hot or get any kind of confidence, here's the changes thing. everything. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the side. That's that's the benefit of small sample sizes. You're you when you start talking about seven games, anyone can get hot in seven games, no matter what the shot. But when you're deliberately, never mind, never. Mind. Well, just wait. No, I'm just saying, mm-hmm. it's a good discussion. I I think they're giving up mid range shots, which is the best shot to give up. Teams are just making them at a very high level. I mean, they're as uncontested as humanly possible, though. Do you, I don't know about that. Like, if you On go off location, game, they literally just let him walk to the to the lane every time and shoot a floater. If you look at location data, they have the eighth best location effective field goal percentage allowed. So basically, like what their defensive effective field goal percentage should be. It's going to even out. Washington started to even out, and they had like the best shot profile defensively in the league. I don't know. Usually you're the jaded one, but this time you are not. Yeah, no, I I think their data looks good. I've like sometimes on the on the film it looks, you know, like I think there is too much room given up at times, but at the same time if I'm like if you're asking me, are you willing to live with James Harden 12-foot floaters over the top of the defense or am I willing to live with James Harden's step back threes, I'm going with the floater every time. I don't know. I feel like I'd have to look at the percentages, but I feel like once the playoffs hit and he's doing those step back threes, they stop going back in. They stop well, remember, going in. Well, remember, all he needs to hit is one of those three threes, and it's equivalent to nailing just one of the two floaters Wait, based what? on points per possession. So, yeah, anyways, second half of the schedule came out. Clippers have like seven back-to-backs, I believe. And uh, one of them is actually a a back-to-back in San Antonio. They play at San Antonio uh, two straight days. Um, And that's actually after that, they come home for nine in a row at home, uh, which is just absurd. Their longest road trip of this second half is a four-game road trip that actually is their final four games of the season. They go to Tampa Bay to play the Toronto Raptors, which is a weird sentence to say. They then played at Charlotte, at Houston on the second night of a back-to-back, and at OKC to finish the season. And here's the thing. End of the season matters from the standpoint of how many of these teams are you playing are quote-unquote tanking or playing for lottery odds. So of their final four road games, like I said, Toronto, Charlotte, Houston, OKC – the final two are against teams that have nothing to play for. They're not good teams. So they're going to have lottery odds to play for. They're going to be probably not rolling out the tippy top lineups that you would expect them to roll out. Um, when it comes to Toronto, Toronto's been rising up the standings. Uh, they're, they're actually in the Eastern Conference playoff picture right now. And the other team is Charlotte, who's also in the Eastern Conference playoff picture. I believe they're actually like the seventh seed right now um, or tied for sixth. 
tied for six and for seven, I believe. Um, but maybe they're playing for lottery odds based on how the second half goes. So, you know, just just keep that stuff in mind. Is there anything in the second half that you saw that you're like kind of like taking note of? Just that their second half of the schedule seems pretty hard. The, it's not that hard. I mean, 55% of their games are against a team with a 500 or better record right now, which is pretty high. Um, 20% of their games are going to be against a team in the top four of a conference. They're going to have seven out of 34 games against the top four team. Uh, the Lakers, Suns, and Clippers all play each other twice, which could determine a lot in the standings, like a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. So, I mean, there's, I don't think it's that easy of a schedule when you have 19 out of 34 games against uh, a, a 500 or better team. I don't really look at it as like that bad. So like if you go off strength of schedule as of right now, um, oh my God, I just lost. I had it pulled up. I apologize. The Clippers strength of schedule for the second half of the season, like while it is like basically at like the 500 level, it's not as actually bad as it could be. So the Clippers strength of schedule in the second half is 506. Um, they have six games with a rest disadvantage, five, uh, two games with a rest advantage, uh, 18 home, 16 away. This is actually in terms of strength of schedule, it's pretty middle of the pack. Uh, I believe it's like 10th, if I can actually uh, count correctly at this point. So it's around 10th. The team with the highest strength of schedule remaining is Orlando. The Clippers actually have a lower strength of schedule rating uh, for the second half of the season than the Lakers do. So if you're wondering about where they would kind of go head to head with the Lakers in the standings, they're about even. Um, by the way, Utah has by far the easiest remaining strength of schedule. That's for a couple reasons. Number one, Utah doesn't have to play the Clippers anymore. Number two, they only have one game remaining with Brooklyn. And number three, they don't actually have to play themselves. So that is a big part of strength of schedule that people also kind of gloss over. If you, if you have the best record in the NBA and you don't have to play yourself, that helps your strength of schedule. So on that note, I do want to say Utah is getting the one seed. We can agree on that, correct? Yeah, but you do look at the strength of schedule, but then at the same time, it's like, come that time, you can look at like a situation like the Bubble Suns or the Blazers, where that team's going to be really fighting. Those 500 teams that are barely 500 or slightly above 500 are going to be really, really fighting for a seventh or eighth seed far more than what people would expect by that time. No, I understand. I'm just, you know, the Lakers have a 519 strength of schedule. The reason I'm bringing up the Lakers. They're right next to each other in the standings. Lakers have a 519 strength of schedule, eight rest advantage, eight rest disadvantage. So they're even there. Uh, 17 home, 18 away. Um, I believe the Lakers also have uh, eight back to backs. The Clippers have seven. Um, it's going to get a little interesting as far as seeding goes. The team that's really interesting to me is Phoenix because I think Phoenix could be in play for the two seed based on schedule. Yeah, I mean, that's why those three games where they all go against each other is going to be so important, too. Phoenix has a 490 strength of schedule. They have 10 rest advantages, six rest disadvantages. That plus four is actually pretty big. They do have nine back-to-backs, uh, 18 home, 19 away. Um, it, it's actually one of those schedules where they finish up, actually, Phoenix does, playing against this slate of teams. Atlanta, New York, the Lakers, the Warriors, the Blazers, the Spurs, and the Spurs again on the second night of a back-to-back. Those are all games against teams that are going to be in the playoff race most likely. So it could get a little dicey for Phoenix 
uh, around there. The interesting thing, as you mentioned, is the Clippers do not play Phoenix until April 8th. So, yeah, they don't play the Lakers or the Suns until April 4th and then April 8th. I do think the only way the the Jazz don't get the first seed is if, like, Gobert gets hurt. That's the only way. And someone else, too. Well, I mean, historically speaking, they always seem to struggle a little bit more once he goes down just because he anchors so much. But if Mitchell or Conley goes out, I don't think it's as big of an impact as just, like, if one individual player is getting hurt between Mitchell, Conley, Gobert, I think the, the biggest impact will be Gobert. But... I mean, it's the same thing with the Clippers. Like, they were on pace for the first seed, and they were playing with a first seed until all of a sudden Paul George was hurt. So that's the only thing that could ever change that trajectory for Utah. But right now, it doesn't look like they're not going to get their first seed. If you're a Clipper fan wondering about Sunday afternoon matinees, don't worry. There's only two in the second half of the season. The second one is May 9th at 12.30 p.m. at home against the Knicks. And the first one is April 4th at home against the Lakers. That game is on ABC. That's also at 1230, obviously, as an afternoon matinee. Those are your two Sunday afternoon matinee games for the Clippers in the second half of the schedule. We're going to end this on a question that someone asked us. You ready? Mm-hmm. What trade options do the Clippers have to land Kyle Lowry? Kennard, Lou, Mann, Patterson, question mark, thoughts? Uh, none. It would be a lot to the point where I don't know if it would be worth it. Uh, they can't trade Luke Kennard. They would have to basically give up Marcus Morris, Patrick Beverly, and Lou Williams. And I don't know if the Clippers would do that, and I don't think Toronto would either. I just saw the report today, though, that he's they're on his list of preferred destinations. Yeah, he really wants to go back to Philadelphia, which is his home. That's what uh, Keith Pompey wrote, and I would trust what he puts, too. So, I mean... It'll be interesting to see where he goes if he does get traded because it does feel like Toronto's back on the up again. Like they, for as bad as they played, like they could still get like the four seed pretty easily because everybody in the East is bad right now. Yeah, outside of what Philly and Brooklyn, the and Milwaukee, the East is pretty much just a hodgepodge of man. Yeah, like they're even even Milwaukee they're only three and a half games behind Milwaukee they could easily take Milwaukee Milwaukee's good as long as they get Drew Holiday back they've been without Drew for a while so it's like they're they're at the five seed right now they're half a game at the behind the four seed like there's and if you were in the playoffs and you're Toronto and you're going against Philadelphia I feel like you're not feeling doom and gloom like if you were playing the 2018 Warriors I feel like you'd as long as you avoid Brooklyn in the playoffs, you'd feel pretty okay if you're in the East. So right. I mean, I don't, I can get why he'd want to leave, but like, it doesn't look that bad for Toronto right now. They're just not as good as they were last year. Yeah. Um, so like I said, end of the day, if you're looking for a trade for Kyle Lowry, it's Marcus Morris, Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, and like a bunch of second round picks. The Clippers don't really have a first round pick to trade. In other words, this deal is highly unlikely. If you're asking me out of on a scale of one to 10, the likelihood of this deal, I'd say a one. So, so I've been wrong before. There's a chance. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a Jim Carrey from Dumb and Dumber. So you're telling me there's a chance. All right. I read you. I read you. You got anything for the people before we get out, get the hell out of here? No. No. Okay. I was going to say, go watch the PlayStation say to play, but. That's technically happening right now, so they're not going to see it in time. Okay. 
All right, everybody, have a good evening. Uh, Like I said, Clippers play in a couple hours. This podcast is going up right away. Everyone have a good night. Take it easy, stay safe, and we'll talk to everybody later. Goodbye. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.